I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we allow the text to lead our thoughts and the topics that we consider and explore. Five weeks ago, we encountered in the text of Deuteronomy a retelling of the Ten Commands, or the Ten Words, from Exodus chapter 20. And when we examined this chapter and its role in the larger scope of the book of Deuteronomy, we discovered that the ten words act as a sort of index for the rest of the legal portion of the book of Deuteronomy. Each of the commands from the ten are then expanded and extrapolated throughout the rest of the book through chapter 25. And so in chapter 6, we begin the Bible's own expansion of the first of the ten words. Deuteronomy 5.6, I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. A command that's not so much a command as it is the foundation for everything that follows. An expression of the role of Hashem as God, his reputation, his power, his redemptive grace, as expressed by the story of the Exodus. And for the following six chapters, this single idea was explored. The foundational idea of the kingdom of God. And as we explored all that Deuteronomy has to say about this ideal, we found that this expansion contained within it a proto-gospel, a first and a very early form of the gospel message, the very same message that was taught by Yeshua, the disciples, and the apostles, a gospel of freedom from bondage and inclusion into the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is entered into through an expression of allegiance to the king doing all that the king commands and proclaims, seeking his good and the good of his kingdom first and foremost, and setting these things up as the priority for your life. And then, in response to this declaration of allegiance, the king extends a gift of grace, a gift with all of the associated ancient Near East ideals of gifts and patronage attached. Given with no expectation of receiving anything back, but received with every expectation of doing all that we can to pay back this most excellent of gifts. And so we give honor and glory to the one who gave the gift that we could not acquire. We seek to increase the influence and power base of our gracious patron. We seek ways to serve the patron with what he has bestowed on us, and we speak of him constantly proclaiming his greatness. And that gift that was given and received, it's a gift of righteousness that leads to justification, a thing that we don't have on our own. It's something that we need another to give us. And so the one who has all righteousness, he gives the gift as an act of grace. And when we receive it, we are then expected to use the gift that we have been given to walk in and accomplish acts of righteousness, not to gain the gift, but because we have been given the gift, and so now we seek to use it. 
and this interaction between Hashem and his people is based on love. Not an emotionally charged high or a sense of passion, but rather a choice that's based on a vow. And no matter what emotions get in the way, the choice stands for all time. And in this we see more clearly the gospel of the kingdom of God, and all of this is contained in just the first of the Ten Commandments. And with this, the bar is set, and it is set high. Because this exercise, it doesn't end here. This expansion of one of the ten words into various scenarios that we may encounter in our day-to-day lives, we can now carry forward into the rest of Deuteronomy and into the rest of our lives. And this week, we begin to move on. No longer are we in the first of the ten words. This week, we move on to the second. And for the next several weeks, this is where we were going to be. One after another, we will encounter each of the remaining ten words. With one exception that I spoke of earlier when we were in chapter five, and which I'm not going to speak on much more until we get there. And so we begin the second command of the ten. Deuteronomy 5, 7 through 10. You shall have no other gods against my face. You do not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness which is in the heavens above or which is in the earth beneath, or which is in the waters underneath the earth. You do not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, Hashem, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, chesed, covenant loyalty to thousands, to those who love me and guard my commands. Idolatry, an act that, as we have discussed before, is likened to adultery towards God. And as we begin to consider, this word is itself an expansion of the first word, but it also, it is its own ideal as well. So let's read this week's text and dig into just how Deuteronomy and then the rest of the Bible explores this second ideal. Deuteronomy 11.26-12.32 through 12.32. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing when you obey the commands of Hashem your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commands of Hashem your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today, to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall be when Hashem your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites, who dwell in the desert plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moreh? For you are passing over the Jordan to go in to possess the land which Hashem your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and dwell in it, and shall guard to do all the laws and the judgments which I am setting before you today. These are the law and the judgments which you guard to do in the land which Hashem, God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the soil. Completely destroy all the places where the nations which you are dispossessing serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall break down their altars and smash their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the carved images of their gods and shall destroy their name out of that place. Do not do so to Hashem your God. But seek the place which Hashem, your God, chooses out of all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling place, and there you shall enter, 
And there you shall take your ascending offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution of your hand and your vowed offerings and your voluntary offerings and the firstlings of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Hashem your God and shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households in which Hashem your God has blessed you. Do not do as we are doing here today, each one doing whatever is right in his own eyes, because you have not yet entered the rest and the inheritance which Hashem your God is giving you. But you shall pass over the Jordan, and you shall dwell in the land which Hashem your God is giving you to inherit, and he shall give you rest from all your enemies round about, and you shall dwell in safety. And it shall be that unto the place which Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell there, there you bring all that I command you, your ascending offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to Hashem. And you shall rejoice before Hashem your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Guard yourself that you do not offer your ascending offerings in every place that you see, except in the place which Hashem chooses. In one of your tribes, there you are to offer your ascending offerings, and there you are to do all that I command you. Only whatever your being desires, you shall sacrifice and eat according to the blessing of Hashem your God, which he has given you within all your gates. The unclean and the clean do eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only their blood you do not eat, poured on the earth like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain, or of your new wine, or of your oil, or of the firstlings of your herd or your flock, or of any of your offerings which you vow or of a voluntary offering, or the contribution of your hand. But eat them before Hashem your God in the place which Hashem your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before Hashem your God in all that you put your hands to. Guard yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. When Hashem your God enlarges your borders, as he has promised you, and you say, Let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat. You eat as much meat as your being desires. When the place where Hashem, your God, chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you shall slaughter from your herd and from your flock which Hashem has given you, as I have commanded you, and you shall eat it within your gates as much as your being desires. Only the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you are to eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike eat of it. Only be strong not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. Do not eat the life with the meat. Do not eat it. You pour it on the earth like water. Do not eat it, that it might be well with you and your children after you, when you do what is right in the eyes of Hashem. Only the holy gifts which you have, and your vowed offerings, you are to take up and go to the place which Hashem chooses. And you shall make your ascending offerings, the meat and the blood on the altar of Hashem your God. And the blood of your sacrifice is poured out on the altar of Hashem your God, and you eat the meat. Guard and obey all these words which I command you, that it might be well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the eyes of Hashem your God. When Hashem your God does cut off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, guard yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? And let me do so too. Do not do so to Hashem your God, for every abomination which Hashem hates they have done to their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in their fire to their gods. 
all the words I am commanding you, guard to do it. Do not add to nor take away from it. Now, as we proceed through the various commands and we explore each one in greater depth, we're going to find a lot of overlap occurring in our exploration. Last week was the culmination of the expansion of the first command, and yet at the very end of this expansion, we read this verse, Deuteronomy 11.16. Guard yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and bow down to them. Guard yourself lest you bow down and serve another god, something that we would consider to be part of the second command, but which we find stated clearly in the expansion of the first. Now, this is a common occurrence in what we are about to read. The ancient mind was not concerned with classification and division in the way that we are. They did not require a hard line of separation between ideas in order for them to be unique. For example, we're going to find next week that the command to not take God's name in vain is very much connected to the idea of image and idolatry. In this command, rather than an image of another God, it's speaking of living out the image of the God that we are created to be like, an idea that is intrinsically connected to idolatry. And this idea of idolatry is something that most Westerners, we have no problem with. At, at least we like to think that this is true. We don't have figurines that are representative of various gods or powers in our homes that we bow down to or offer food to or, or offer service or worship to. I mean, sure, they do exist around us, but, but it's more in others that we think of as the fringe elements of society. But when I worked in computers, there were several times when I saw a shrine to a god in the home of a practicing Hindu. Or we've all seen the Buddha statue sitting on the shelf in the store or in the office. Or the Maneki Neko cat, the figure with the raised paw in Chinese restaurants. Even these, well, they're not quite idolatry as we read of being described here. No one bows to a Maneki Neko cat or to a Buddha. They are not seen as idols, even by practicing idolaters but rather as a good luck charm to invite wealth and prosperity in the case of the Maneki Neko, or a reminder of ideals of Buddhism in the case of the Buddha. But for most of us in Christian circles, uh, these are non-issues. We're too enlightened or we're too Christian to engage in anything so blatant as to host idols in our home or our business, or to believe that they have any power whatsoever. But we need to remember, what is described here in this law is not prescriptive. When the text speaks of creating and bowing down to images, we must recognize that this idea does not stop at only physical images of wood and stone and precious materials. This idea can be extrapolated into any way of acting that places anything as a higher priority than our service to and worship of God. We catch a glimpse of this in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know, that no one who whores, nor unclean one, nor one greedy of gain, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. Simply being greedy is equated to idolatry by Paul in Ephesians. In the New Testament, the idea of idolatry takes on a more sublime cast, now not limited to bowing before idols, but rather succumbing to the controlling impulses of our sinful nature. And so with this in mind, that idolatry is not limited to the physical act of bowing before a statue, 
Let's look at this chapter and see if we can figure out how Paul got from where we are in Deuteronomy to this claim in Ephesians and elsewhere. We know that he used this process of extrapolation to arrive at this conclusion. And if we can track his extrapolation, we can then better engage in this process ourselves. So as the Parsha opens in chapter 11, it begins with the idea of the blessing and the curse. If you shema the things that I'm about to tell you, then you will receive blessings. And if you do not shema, you will receive curses. Just a few weeks ago, we dug into this word. My translation says, obey here. Uh, just do the things. But the idea of obey is it's a limiting idea that reduces these commands to rote obedience to a list of rules. But when we see the extrapolation that's occurring throughout the Bible to arrive at conclusions such as greed equals idolatry, then obey may be too limiting a word. Rather, hearken, listen to, take heart, meditate on this, apply it, is in my estimation, it's a better translation of this word, and this chapter is an excellent reason for why this is. So hearken to the command that you will receive blessing. Don't hearken to the command? Well, that brings a curse. Now, this idea of blessing and curse is something that we will have ample opportunity to really explore in a few months, so we're going to table this idea for now. We'll return to it later in the course of the text when these ideas are then extrapolated on their own. So when we get to chapter 12, we should recognize that this entire chapter is regarding the concept of idolatry. Now, while idolatry is stated in the 10 words, it has to do with creating images and bowing to them, a, a limited expression of idol worship. When we get to this chapter, we discover that there is more going on here. But this is how it begins. The command says, don't create these images or bow to or serve them. But when we open up chapter 12, the first thing that we read is that we are to actively search out and destroy the places and the items of worship that were used by those who came before. Now, it's not just don't bow to them, destroy any that might be in the place where you live. On the high mountain in the hill, the tops of the mountains were, it was believed, the place that God and man came together. Any mountaintop, any hilltop could be used in the ancient Near East mine as a place of worship because that's where the gods met men. And so most were used. Altars were erected and worship practices were accomplished in these high places. And under every green tree, the green trees, these are the evergreen trees. And the sacred groves were created in evergreen trees. They weren't cut down and brought into your house. They were left planted. And people would go into them and they would offer worship and sacrifice in the sacred groves surrounded by green trees. And these groves would also have dotted the land. And these places, these items of worship that exist in these locations, they are to be completely destroyed. Any idol, any pole, any altar, any image that you find in any of these places are to be torn down. Instead, when you worship Hashem, you should go only to the place that he chooses. But the place that Hashem chooses, it's not super cut and dried. It's a complicated study that leads to several conundrums. In the beginning with the tabernacle, this could have been anywhere. For several centuries, the location of the tabernacle was in Shiloh. It's a city in the lands of Ephraim, about halfway between Jerusalem and Shechem. This place was chosen in Joshua 18 as the place for the ark to rest, and it was the place of the tabernacle until it was removed to be taken into battle against the Philistines. 
In this battle, the ark was then captured and seized by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. In the intervening incursion of the Philistines, it's not specifically stated, but it is believed by many that the city of Shiloh was actually taken over and destroyed by the Philistines as they continued their campaign. After this, the Ark and the Tabernacle, they were actually itinerant, and they were separated for a time of around 80 years. When the Ark was returned by the Philistines after only a few months, it was returned to, and then it remained in Kiriath Yearim until it was removed to Jerusalem by David in 2 Samuel 15. But the tabernacle after the fall of Shiloh was moved to Nob, as a priestly city near Jerusalem. This is where David was given the showbread by Ahimelech the priest when he was on the run. And for several decades, the tabernacle in Nob and the ark in Kiriath Yearim, they were separated by less than 10 miles, but they were not brought back together ever again. Soon after the escape of David, though, Saul seeks to kill the priests because they dared to help David, and he slaughters the priests at Nob. But Ahimelech then escapes this attack with the tabernacle, and he moves it to his hometown of Gibeon, where it remains until the Temple of Solomon was built. Around 12 years after David became king, he then had the ark moved to Jerusalem to a tent that he had prepared for it. The ark stayed there in this tent that was not the tabernacle, and it did not move until the temple was built by Solomon. But at this time, once David moved the ark to Jerusalem, there were, in essence, two tabernacles. There was the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem, which had the replica tent and altar, but had a real Ark of the Covenant. And there was the tabernacle of Moses in Gibeon that had the brazen altar and all of the items in the tent, but it didn't have the Ark. For nearly 30 years, during the reign of King David and the beginning of the reign of Solomon, there were these competing tabernacles and competing high priests in Israel. Zadok, of the line of Eleazar, the legitimate high priest, after the fall of Eli, he was in Gibeon with the real tent and the real altar. Abiathar, of the line of Ithamar, a rejected line, was in Jerusalem with the ark. For the entirety of the reign of Saul and David, there was no true tabernacle. There were two houses each with part of the whole, and in a way they competed against each other. It was this issue that was the heart of David's desire to build a once-and-for-all house to Hashem to dwell in. And it was this that caused David to declare in Psalm 132, verses 1-5, through O Hashem, remember David all his afflictions, how he swore to Hashem, vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, not to enter into my dwelling place, not to get into my bed, not to give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for Hashem, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David recognized that the situation of his day was not the ideal, and he desired to rectify this issue and to bring the worship of Israel, the worship of Hashem, back into unity. But once the temple was built, this was the place that Hashem chose as his. But even this house did not last forever. Jerusalem remained the place for worship and sacrifice, and it remained so until the first temple was destroyed around 423 BCE, but it did not do so without competition. 
We'll get to that in just a moment. For more than 70 years after the destruction of the temple, there was again no temple, no tabernacle, no place of worship. And when the second temple was built, it didn't have the ark. The ark was lost to the annals of history when the first temple was destroyed. There's some theories out there as to what happened to it. I'm not going to comment on any of those. There are also some today who have made the claim that they do know where the ark is located. But at this point, it's only rumor and it hasn't been confirmed. So the second temple lasted, again, it lasted around 400 years until it was destroyed by the Romans around 70 CE. And so the question arises, where is the place of Hashem today? Is it still in Jerusalem? Is this the place where Hashem dwells? If Jerusalem was the place that Hashem chose for himself, then what was this place when Lamentations was written in Lamentations 2, 6 through 7? He has laid waste his booth like a garden. He has laid ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, and he has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised in a clamor in the house of the Lord as on their day of festival. Hashem rejected in my translation. He scorned and he disowned his altar and his sanctuary and his kings and their priests when he allowed Jerusalem to fall the first time. If this is the case, then is this also the case the second time when Jerusalem was rejected once again when the second temple was destroyed? Is Jerusalem today the place where Hashem dwells? Is it the place that he has chosen for this time, this day, in this age? And when it comes to animal sacrifice, the answer would be yes, of course, because there can be no other temple or altar built except for in Jerusalem. And there's no other altar which is built by human hands on which animal sacrifice can be performed. So when it comes to the physical, then... To a degree, yes, when it comes to what this chapter is talking about. But the thing which this chapter of Deuteronomy describes, it's, it's still in effect even though there is no other temple. Because until there is a physical place that Hashem chooses for his name to dwell once again, Isaiah 14, 1-2 seems to be in effect. Because Hashem has compassion on Jacob and shall again choose Israel, and give them rest in their own land. And the strangers shall join them, and they shall cling to the house of Jacob. And people shall take them, and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel shall possess them for servants and male servants in the land of Hashem. And they shall make captives of their captors, and rule over their oppressors. Hashem will choose Israel once again. He will choose Jerusalem as the place for his name to dwell. Future. But in the meantime, as far as animal sacrifice, there is no place for this to occur. Because the temple is not there, and it is not here. The temple of the current age is not one that's built with human hands, but is rather a temple that is spiritual. And so the sacrifices that we are to offer are likewise spiritual. And here at the end of this part of the chapter on sacrifice, we find something interesting. Back in Leviticus 17, we read a command that stated that anyone who killed an animal that could be sacrificed, the animal was to be brought to the tabernacle to be sacrificed. 
anyone who killed an animal for food without bringing it to the tabernacle for sacrifice would incur guilt and be cut off from Israel. Very serious offense. But in this chapter, we read the complete opposite. Animals can be slaughtered for food wherever you like without bringing them to the tabernacle for sacrifice. This command in Leviticus is being overturned here in Deuteronomy. But the command about drinking blood, that still remains. So what's going on here? Especially since one of these chapters that contains the admonition to not take away from this law. And yet it's this chapter that contains the overturning of a previously given command. Many of us might call that taking away from the law. But it is here that we find a very real example of how the Torah is a descriptive law, not prescriptive, and that taking away from or diminishing the Torah is not what many of us have made it out to be. This law is a direct overturning of the previously given command. What changed? Well, the simple answer is the circumstances. Canaan was too big of a land for everyone who wanted to eat meat to have to travel to this centralized location in order to offer the animal as a sacrifice. This could mean up to two weeks of travel just to get meat. This change, it's a matter of practicality. The situation is changing, and so the specifics of the law needed to change with it. While in camp, while in the wilderness, this wasn't a problem. The tabernacle was close by. Everybody could see it. But in the land, those to the far north and to the far south, they might have to travel to reach the tabernacle. And so this change was necessary because protein is necessary. Added to this, we find in this command a practical, experiential break from idolatry for Israel while in the wilderness. In Egypt, Israel was a people who were used to sacrificing wherever they wanted to whatever God they wanted to. They were okay with henotheism, this practice of polytheism with a hierarchy. But Hashem is not a henotheistic God. He is a singular God. And so this command in the wilderness with the people who were used to pagan sacrificial practices was meant to break the people of this practice. And so when the second generation then reaches the east side of the Jordan, not a single person who was still alive had sacrificed to another god or anywhere other than at the tabernacle. In fact, every bite of meat that they had tasted from an animal that could be sacrificed had come from the tabernacle and the altar, and it had to be eaten in a state of ritual purity. And so the rules could be relaxed now, not simply out of this practicality of travel, but because the second generation, they wouldn't have that impetus of past action driving them to sacrifice in this way. So while the first half of this chapter is given in regards to the practice of sacrifice, the wares, and a few tweaks of the hows from Leviticus, the second part of the chapter shifts the topic a bit, from sacrifice to worship. There's only one place for sacrifice, but is there only one place for worship? And there's really no answer given to this question because this is a false dichotomy to the ancient Near East mind. In the ancient Near East, sacrifice and worship were synonymous. Instead, the command is given once again as an echo of Leviticus. Do not learn the worship practices of the nations that you're going into dispossess, and do not worship their gods. 
Because those nations, they do every abomination that's listed previously in Leviticus for their gods, even to the point of sacrificing their own children. And so while it was Solomon that unified the worship practices of Israel into a singular location with the temple, it was also Solomon who introduced into Israel the worship practices of the surrounding nations for the sake of his wives, including building altars to Chemosh and Molech. 1 Kings 11, 7-10 Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And so he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Therefore Hashem was enraged with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Hashem, God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and it commanded him concerning this word not to go after other gods. But he did not guard what Hashem had commanded. And the confusing matter of the worship practice of Israel, it's increased. During the days of David, there were two competing tabernacles, neither having everything needed for worship practices described in the book of Leviticus, but both focused on the God of Israel. But then Solomon builds the temple and consolidates the priesthood and reinitiates true worship of Hashem. And then it is Solomon as well that then legitimizes the worship of other gods back into the practices of Israel. And it's after Solomon that the kingdom splits and Jeroboam in the north builds two more temples to compete with Jerusalem. He reinstitutes the calf worship that was attempted at the base of Mount Sinai. And again, competing locations for the worship of Hashem, but this time there's only one legitimate and there are two false locations. At no point in the history of Israel was there pure, unadulterated worship of Hashem for more than a single generation. This one thing, perhaps more than any other, was the greatest downfall of Israel. And so the question comes up in my mind, why? Why is it that these people who knew and experienced God sought to worship other gods? Why couldn't they keep their focus on Hashem alone? And the answer for them seems to be the same as for myself, as well as the thing that led Paul to making statements that he made in the New Testament regarding idolatry. Israel wanted more. The gods of the ancient world, they were fickle, yes, but they supposedly granted wishes and desires and protection. Do you want fertility in your crops? Then simply worship this god or goddess of grain or the harvest, or seek the favor of the god of storms and weather. Do you want victory or just safety in battle? Then worship this god of war. Do you want to experience every form of hedonism? Then worship with the temple prostitutes, at the temple to the fertility goddess, or at the temple to the god of wine. Want to simply do well in life? Well, there is a god of fortune or luck that you can turn to, or you could turn to the god of money or commerce. Missing a dead relative? Seek out the god of death or his practitioners. Do you want power? Well, you can learn to manipulate the material world in your favor. Simply bow down and worship these other gods. Learn their ways and you can have power over the material. The gods of the nations have everything that you could want. Worship them and they will give it to you. What's this? The god of creation? Well, he sounds cool. Wait, what? 
He let your people rot in Egypt for 400 years. When he rescued you, he made you go through a wilderness for years on end, and you went without? Huh? He allowed you to be conquered over and over without giving you a government? He won't let you worship other gods? He makes you look weird. He makes you look weak. He keeps you from truly experiencing all that life has to offer. Why would you ever want to worship this God of all things who only does what he wants and not what you want? Come, worship over here and you can have whatever you want. Power, money, fame, sex, drugs, food, honor. You can be lifted high. You can be exalted. Your every desire can be fulfilled. And to this, the sinful human heart cries out, Yes, this is what I want. I want to satisfy my base desires. And Hashem is keeping me from them. And it is here in this that we discover the idolatry of this age. It is the same as the location of the temple in this age. You see, in this age, the temple of Hashem is not a physical building that was made with human hands. It is a temple of spirit. The temple is us in the community, and he has chosen to place his name on us and to dwell in us, on his people, not a specific geographical location. No longer do we worship in Jerusalem or Bethel or Dan or Shiloh. Now we worship in spirit and truth, because Hashem is not a God of substance but rather he is a God of spirit. And so while the people of the past worshipped him in physical locations and buildings of stone, our very hearts in the midst of our congregations is the place of the worship for this age. We are his temple. In the same way, the idolatry of this age is not demonstrated in physical idolatry by bowing to wood and stone. Rather, idolatry is expressed in spirit and an ideal. Colossians 3, 4-5 When the Messiah who is our life is manifested, then you also shall be manifested with him in honor. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, whoring, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and greed of gain, which is idolatry. It's not just greed that is idolatry. It is each of these things sexual immorality, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, as well as greed of gain. And our society is saturated with these things. Just turn on a TV or open your web browser. Sex sells and is present in nearly every area, including our news. Just sacrifice your innocence and your mind. Every desire can be fulfilled for a price. Foods that were previously unimaginable. Helpings that overwhelm our appetites. Passions. Follow your passion. Do what your heart tells you. You can't control who you love. Love is love and passion is passion. Just let go of your inhibitions and experience the many flavors of love to be had. Perhaps your passion is not a person. Perhaps it's your art or your chosen career or a game or a form of entertainment. No need for self-control. Indulge without end. Desire, 
entire markets are based around the ideas of not just fulfilling desire, but creating desire within us. Advertising has been scientifically designed to create needs in our minds, luring us into fixating on things we truly don't need. And the American dream, you too can be successful and wealthy and powerful. Just buckle down and work hard. All it takes is sacrifice. Sacrifice your time, money, your focus, your labor. Just give and give and give and give and you can receive your heart's desires. The siren's call of idolatry tugging on our hearts and our minds. You see, idolatry as described here and then extrapolated by the apostles is not limited to idols of wood and stone. It is the act of placing anything else at all as priority above Hashem, Yeshua, and the kingdom of God. And once again, we can learn from the rich young ruler, Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30 And see, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good shall I do to have everlasting life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. But if you wish to enter into life, guard the commands, he said to him. Which? And Yeshua said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Respect your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have watched over from my youth. What do I still lack? And Yeshua said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard the word, he went away sad, because he had many possessions. And Yeshua said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heavens. This man who had much was entrenched in the wealth that he was used to. His priority was his riches. The core issue that this man faced was idolatry. He had a thing, his riches, that he placed as a priority over the kingdom of God. Continuing on in verse 24, And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were astonished, saying, Who then is able to be saved? And looking intently, Yeshua said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples here, they're confounded. Who can possibly be saved if the rich and the famous and the honorable have such difficulty entering into the kingdom? Is there hope for anyone? To which Yeshua answers, yes. To those who put God first and allow him to take the lead in their lives. And what does Peter respond to this in verse 27? And Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and we have followed you. What then shall we have? And Yeshua said to them, Truly I say to you, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me in the rebirth, you shall also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many who are first shall be last and the last first. We have put you first in our lives, they said. You are our priority over all other things. Is there a reward for putting our priority on you? 
to which Yeshua promises all sorts of rewards in the kingdom when it comes, for those who sacrifice in the present for the sake of following Yeshua. You see, idolatry flows from a heart that has not truly declared allegiance to Hashem and to His anointed King. It's a heart that seeks to satisfy the desires or pride or power over all else. It's a heart that has not been circumcised and still seeks to accomplish things for the kingdom of God under human power. The church is full of people who simply pay lip service to the idea of God, but who, when forced with a choice, they choose to place anything else as their priority. Once we recognize this, we are faced with this choice and this question. What is your priority in this life? Is your priority the kingdom of God? Are you willing to give up all that you have and follow him should he ask it of you? Are you willing to step out into poverty, to lack, to discomfort, or even death if he requires it of you? If not, then you need to ask, have you truly declared allegiance to Yeshua and his kingdom? Or have you simply paid lip service? And the only one who can answer that question is you. So choose this day, and the next, and the day after that, whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of this world, lust and greed and power and pride and comfort? Or will you serve Hashem? The choice is yours, and it is one that must be made daily. And it is in making this choice continually that you will stay on the path of life. So seek life in all that you do. Dereshchai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.